Thanks to Calm, the number one mental wellness app for supporting the show. Stress less, sleep more, relax. Calm's got everything you need for a happier and healthier you. Get 40% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com slash TPS. Welcome to the Productivity Show, a podcast where we believe that knowledge workers like you can get everything done without sacrificing your health, family, and things that matter to you. If it's your first time listening, welcome to the Productivity Show. My name is Tan. I'm the founder and CEO of Asian Efficiency, where we help people become more productive at work and in life. And we do this through online courses, online programs, workshops, all the good stuff. And I'm always joined by my co-host, Brooks Duncan, who has a background in corporates. So we came from two completely different backgrounds. I'm more of an entrepreneurial guy. And that doesn't mean that we have dividing philosophies around productivity. In fact, we have three philosophies we both believe in. And that is one, happy people are productive people. Two, one tweak a week is all it takes to make massive productivity gains. And then three, we always want everything we do to be simple and actionable. So by the end of this episode and every episode that we do on the show, there's always something that you can take away and implement and see great results in your personal life. And uh, if you ever wanted to get in touch, know that we are very accessible. You can always email us at podcast at asianefficiency.com. We love hearing from you, good and bad. Uh, whether it's at the end of the episode, you're like, hey, this was a great episode. You know, let us know. We'd love that kind of feedback. But also if you're like, man, eh, this episode wasn't that great, let us know as well so we can do better next time. And if you have ideas for episodes, we would love to hear them as well. But one of the things we're also known for is we always like to kick off our episodes with our top three favorite resources. And Brooks, I know you have them here today. So what are they? All right. My first resource is the Microsoft Surface Pro. It's something that's basically a tablet, but it comes with a keyboard and runs Windows. So it's not like the iPad, which runs iOS. It runs full normal Windows. And the reason I bring this up, I've had one for years, but recently I had a situation where I had to be on an early meeting and I wasn't going to be home and I didn't want to lug my laptop, but I knew there would be screen sharing and stuff like that. And so since I'm old, I didn't want to be squinting at my iPad, which probably could have worked. So I decided to take my Surface Pro and it was just a perfect balance of size, portability, ease of use, but also is a real computer. And it got me thinking that I would actually, maybe I'm the only person in the world, but I would love it if Apple made basically a Mac, the size of the big iPad, same thickness and everything, uh, but running Mac OS and not iOS. If they made that, I would buy it right away. So since they don't make that, my recommendation is the Surface Pro. I have the 7, which is quite old. Uh, I think the 9 is the latest one. So that's number one, the Microsoft Surface Pro. Number two, for the Mac side of the family, uh, is an app called Drop Zone. And so this is a little app that sits up in your menu bar. And what it allows you to do is set up as the name implies, drop zones where you can drag files up to your menu bar and then it opens up a little window and you can do things like send things to saved folders, upload them to different services like Amazon S3 or something like that. But you can also pin different files to your drop zone and then you can drag it from your drop zone to anywhere. So I use this for things like images that I use all the time. Uh, I have them saved in my drop zone window and it just makes it really easy to use those reusable assets uh, a 
all the time. So Drop Zone is my second recommendation. And third is the Better Sweater by Patagonia. I have the full zip, but they come in a quarter zip as well. My wife has had one of these for years. My brother bought me one for my birthday and it's just so warm and cozy, but also lightweight. Now it does make you look like a Silicon Valley VC. So that is the downside of it, or maybe the upside. <laughs> but uh, I like it so much, especially since I'm living at my mother-in-law's house right now, as listeners know, and it's freezing in her house constantly. So I wear it pretty much every day, so much so that my wife has actually bought me a second one for Christmas. So we're gonna be one of those twinsy couples, sadly. Uh, but anyway, it's the Patagonia Better Sweater. So those are my top three resources, and you can find links to all of them at the productivityshow.com or to swipe in your podcast app. Uh, and I just want to point out that we're also on YouTube. So you can go to theproductivityshow.com forward slash YouTube or just search The Productivity Show on YouTube. And we have full episodes and clips there as well. Well, uh, good news for you, Brooks. Uh, if you wear that sweater in Austin, you'll fit right <laughs> in. Uh, I think it's kind of a thing here as well. So you're, you're not out of the ordinary if you wear it here, just so you know. There you go. There you go. So Brooks, I want to go over some new updates that have been happening and I want to hear your take and feedback on this. So the first one I want to discuss is VPN is now available on Apple TV. So with the recent updates, you can now actually have a VPN, a virtual private network running on your Apple TV. So ExpressVPN, which is one of the largest uh, VPN services in the world, is the first app to offer on Apple TV the ability to use a VPN and watch content using a VPN. So this is great for people who, for example, let's say you live in the United States, but you can't watch certain things in Europe. Well, if you turn on the VPN and you're somehow based in the Netherlands or France, all of a sudden you can watch, you know, the Dutch soccer league videos uh, that you otherwise couldn't watch, you know, and uh, I'm mentioning that uh, specific experience because I do that myself. <laughs> so uh, that's how I know. And so uh, I have an Apple TV at home. I use it a lot. I find it very convenient. And now that we have this VPN option, I'm like, oh, this makes it a little bit more convenient to watch certain contents on the TV instead of like streaming from your MacBook or something like that, right? Uh, but even within the States, you can use this. For example, uh, I, I'm here in Austin, Texas, and I cannot watch certain Lakers games because they restrict it by states like you have to live in California to watch cer certain games because you know certain TV networks over there have access to certain games that you know you wouldn't uh, be able to watch uh, nationwide and so for cases like that that's super helpful so go check out uh, ExpressVPN if that's something you want to have on your Apple TV now the other thing I want to mention this is also a really cool feature with a recent update uh, with tvOS 17 is that they now support continuity camera, meaning now you can have Zoom meetings on your TV. So the way this works is when you install Zoom on Apple TV, uh, you can use your iPhone or iPad as a camera, but then actually have the meeting itself on your TV. And I thought this was really nifty because it uses you know all the features that we are already familiar with, right? Using continuity camera and that sort of thing. But now we actually have a good use case for it. Imagine having a Zoom meeting in bed, you know, <laughs> with uh, with with Apple TV that way, and using your iPhone as you know the camera and microphone as well. And so uh, I thought that was really nifty. I wanted to bring it up. But uh, your thoughts? 
Yeah, well, you mentioned earlier that I come from a corporate background. So I think especially with the VPN thing, that's probably, you know, the watching sports is probably what's going to be the vast majority of the uses. Uh, but I could see corporate use for these things as well. For example, Zoom, like a lot of meeting rooms have Apple TVs connected to the screen for displaying videos and stuff like that. So this would be a way to get around having to have expensive video conferencing gear. If you could just use the Apple TV that you already have and a phone, all of a sudden you've got ways to have these kind of Zoom calls from meeting rooms. Uh, and also imagine how great that would have been during COVID as well, when we were all stuck at home and, and doing Zoom meetings with each other to be able to do it, families do it on a TV and stuff like that. That would have been awesome. Uh, and the VPN thing, I could see corporates embracing this as well. If they're doing more secure stuff on their Apple TV, maybe they want to have it protected by a VPN as well. So I think there's fun uses for this stuff, but there's also business uses for it as well. Oh, yeah. You actually bring up a good point how a lot of meeting rooms nowadays have Apple TV. I forgot about that because, yeah, like you said, you don't have to use expensive equipment then to have like a, a conference meeting. You can just, you know, use that uh, instead of bunching up together uh, behind a MacBook Air. <laughs> you can actually use a TV and use your, you know, other devices as, as a camera for that. So that makes a lot of sense. I actually... I am curious myself how other use cases will come out of this because by having continuity camera now enabled, uh, I think it opens up so many more options. Like imagine doing a live webinar, for example, in such a way versus, you know, doing it from your computer. You can actually kind of do it through the TV experience and, and so on. So I'd be curious to see if uh, like live entertainment might change that way or if there's new social media coming from out of this, like there's just so many possibilities. So interesting to see. And if you have any interesting use cases for this, uh, let us know. I, I would love to hear from you. All right, moving on. I have three topics here today, Brooks. I wanted to get your takes on them as well. So the first one is what is one productivity myth you wish more people knew was false? So I was reading this uh, Reddit uh, thread and someone asked this simple question, what's one productivity myth you wish more people knew were false? And I went through all the comments and there's some stuff in there that I think both you and I agree upon. And then there's a lot of stuff in there where like, hmm, I don't know about that, uh, but it, it was very interesting. So I wanted to highlight a few. So the most popular comments and the thing that people said most often was multitasking. So it's this false sense of doing two things at the same time, right? And if you've been following us for a while, you know that we are not big proponents of multitasking whatsoever. We are big proponents of singular focus, like do one thing at a time and do it really well. And I agree with that. Multitasking is a thing that you still see on like job descriptions and, you know, resumes, like I'm really good at multitasking or we're looking for somebody who's really good at multitasking. And what they're really trying to say is that hey, we're looking for someone who's really productive and effective. That's really what they're trying to say. They just think that multitasking is a particular skill that people might have that allows them to be productive. But we all know, if you've been listening to us for a while, that that's just not the case, right? That's just not how the brain works. The brain can only focus on one thing at a time, but it can do a decent job of switching back and forth, and that's called context switching. And that's really what the brain does when we're multitasking. So uh, another thing, I thought this was really funny. This was like the second most popular comment. Uh, this person said, stay away from these so-called social media gurus who are always selling courses. Almost 90% of them are fake. 
And you know how sometimes when you read something, you can always feel like, oh, you are being attacked, right? You're like, oh, this felt personal. Well, first of all, I'm not a social media guru, so I didn't feel relatable, <laughs> related to that <laughs> whatsoever, even though we do sell online courses and programs. But this is a thing lately where a lot of people are selling stuff online. Like, you know, A lot of people who have big personalities and personal brands are selling productivity courses. It's oftentimes like a byproduct of a course, if that makes sense. It's not like their main thing. Like their main thing might be helping people, you know, make money online or like be a better investor or whatever, or to have, you know, some sort of lifestyle like fitness or whatever. And then they happen to have some sort of productivity course on the side where it's like, this is how I do stuff. And, you know, this is what my method is and what works for me. And Hopefully it will work for you, right? If you like me, then you'll probably like this, which is kind of different from what we do because the only thing that we do is productivity. That's the singular focus that we have. We don't really do anything else. And then the third one is waking up early achieves anything. If you have not addressed other issues, then simply starting your procrastination earlier in a day. And I think that's another myth. Even myself fell for in the past, thinking that, you know, waking up early is the key to success and that's going to solve all your problems. And, you know, joining the 5 a.m. club is going to make you 10 times more productive. And I've tried it. It uh, didn't work for me. So even though I am an early riser, and I know you are an early riser as well, even earlier, I would say, that's more of because of that's who you are, not because you tend to be doing that because you want to be more productive. So curious to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I totally agree about the waking up early thing, even though, like you said, I am an extreme early riser and I probably would have been whether I was involved in productivity or not. But yeah, one thing I really liked about the waking up early comment is that they say if you haven't addressed other issues and it's simply starting your procrastination earlier in the day. And I think that is totally true. I think if you want to wake up early and you have a structure around that and you're allowing yourself to get a good amount of sleep, I think it can be productive. And I think also we talk about on the podcast seasons of life. I think if you are somebody who has a family, a lot of distractions during the day, waking up early and using that early time before other people are awake or getting to the office early and getting in some focus time before everyone else shows up, I think those can help you be really productive. But waking up early in and of itself isn't going to do it. Uh, I totally agree with that. Uh, there was another thing I saw, which I just kind of noticed at the bottom of the thread because it was voted down and it's by Hudibrastic. <laughs> and it says the most common myth they feel right now is that working four days a week is more productive than working five days a week. And I thought that was an interesting comment because there is a lot of buzz we've talked about on the podcast before about four day work weeks and how great they are. And I actually agree with this person, even though they were downvoted into oblivion, I actually agree with this person that Four-day work weeks aren't necessarily more productive than five-day work weeks, but I do think they can be as productive. So it just depends how you approach it. Yeah, I mean, we've done four-day work weeks here. And from my own experience and observation, I think they are just as productive. I wouldn't say that they are more productive. I think they are just as productive. So you can get five days of work done in four days, essentially, right? And that in itself can mean that it's more productive because you save an extra day. But typically what happens is people work a little bit longer on those days. And then also I find, at least from my 
personal experience, I'm a little bit more intense when it comes to working on those four days so that I can have the fifth day off. And so, yeah, depending how you look at it, that can be considered more productive because you, you, know, you gain an extra day in that sense. But I thought that was an interesting comment in the sense that, yeah, it's kind of hype right now. But now that the working culture is kind of like, hey, all the big companies are now forcing people to come back to the office, right? There's this battle here in the States, at least like, and I'm hearing a lot of conversations from both sides, both the employers and the employees that, you know, people don't want to go back to the office, but it, it is a requirement. And so there's a lot of negotiation now between like, hey, okay, you know, can you come back three days to the office and then, you know, work two days at home or, you know, and some companies are like, no, like you have to be back five days a week inside the office. Most notably, Elon Musk, you know, is a big proponent of that here in Austin. And so it's kind of interesting to kind of see that. Again, I think it also depends on the different seasons of life and also the growth stage of the company. Like I would never ask this for a startup that's barely two years old. That probably wouldn't work. But if you're an established company, you know, that probably could be a fun incentive. So it all kind of depends in that sense. And I know, Brooks, you tend to wake up early and still wake up early. Now, do you still find because you wake up earlier that there's less distractions in the morning and you're still productive because of that? Or is it just because, hey, that's just your body clock and things just work out that way? Yeah, it definitely works out that I feel that I am more productive by waking up early. But the reason for that is because I have a structure, right? There's certain things that I do at certain times and I'm like knocking them off before my full day starts. So if I was just waking up and scrolling Reddit and, uh, you know, doing whatever, uh, I don't think that would really make a difference. Uh, but be because I am pretty structured in my mornings, uh, I do think it makes me more productive than if I woke up later. But that's just me. If somebody is not naturally an early riser, I think maybe that wouldn't be the case, right? Maybe they wouldn't be effective doing things in the morning, in which case trying to force yourself to do it because you think that's what you're supposed to do. I think you probably wouldn't be productive in that case. You know that saying, your presence is the best present? I mean, I literally said it to my brother on WhatsApp this morning. Well, this holiday season, Calm wants to help you show up as your best self. With Calm, you can practice exercises that help you feel more present to the life around you and have a deeper connection with the people you love. Calm is the number one app for sleep and meditation, giving you the power to calm your mind and change your life. Calm recognizes that not everybody faces the same challenge and has the same amount of time to dedicate to this stuff, so they have solutions for all of us. They even have expert-led talks on topics such as tips for overcoming stress and anxiety, handling grief, improving self-esteem, caring for relationships, and there's just a bunch more. Now, for some of this, this stuff comes naturally, but for the rest of us, it's so helpful to have Calm there when we need it. My main use of Calm is the daily Calm, which is surprising how often the right topic just comes up at the perfect time. I also like sleep stories, which are there when I need them. They just put me right off to sleep when I hear the narrator talking about trains and walking trails. I mean, those are the topics that work for me, but they have all sorts of different categories that will resonate with anyone. For listeners of the show, Calm is offering an exclusive offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com slash TPS. Go to calm.com slash TPS for 40% off unlimited access to Calm's entire library. That's calm.com slash TPS. Okay, so an interesting follow-up question to that then is, obviously when 
people have kids, especially as a younger, right? Um, things are a little bit more hectic. Your sleeping schedule is a little out of whack, right? And as the kids get a little older, you're able to establish your routine. It makes it a little easier. And then there is oftentimes a advantage, I would say, to waking up a little earlier before the kids because then you can, you know, kind of get some work done before they wake up, right? And do your adult responsibilities. And that's actually one of the comments uh, I saw in the thread as well. Like someone mentioned, like nobody talks about responsibilities. They all assume that you just mm-hmm. yep. work, work out and eat and that's all you do, <laughs> right? And in reality, we have to do all these other things like taking care of our kids, taking care of our dogs, you know, our grandparents or elderly, uh, our own parents, people in our family, stuff in our community. Like there's all these things we have to do uh, outside of, you know, just work, eating, working out and that kind of stuff, Uh, which I thought was a fair point. But my question to you is now that you have one kid that's off to uni and another kid that's kind of like still in high school. Have you noticed a difference in terms of how your mornings are different now over the past few years? This whole structured early morning thing, that all started when my kids were younger. And it was exactly what you said. I would wake up earlier and get stuff done before everyone else woke up because I knew once everyone else woke up, (laughs) you know, it wouldn't be possible. So that's what started this whole thing. Now that's not a thing, right? It's not, you know, that. My kids are older, like you said, one's one's off at university, one's uh, in high school, but requires zero uh, morning interaction. So it's not needed necessarily, but it just has worked so well for me that I just kept on going with it. But it definitely is not as necessary now for me that it was, but I still like it. So I still do it. Awesome. Well, I just want to make sure you gave people hope that whoever's listening right <laughs> yeah. now, if they have young kids, like there's there's an end to it. <laughs> I always, I always remember uh, when my my youngest son was born. So I had, you know, a, a two-year-old and a newborn. And my wife and I went to one of my company Christmas party at the time. And we chatted with these people who had older kids. And my wife and I were just sitting there at the table like zombies. And one of them said, don't worry, it, it does get better. It does get easier. And we couldn't see that at the time. But, uh, sure enough, it did. So yes, if you're listening to this and your productivity is taking a massive hit, uh, that's just a normal season of life thing. And it will <laughs> it will get better. But the more structure you can put into things with giving yourself some grace, then, uh, then the better it will be. Uh, And speaking of giving yourself some grace, I might as well move on to the second topic we want to talk about. And that is a question for you, Tan, and I'm very curious what your thoughts are on this. Is it okay to suck at things sometimes? (laughs) And this came up because I was reading this article in the New York Times, and it was from actually back in 2017, but it just surface to me now. And the article is called It's Great to Suck at Something. And the article is about how much the author loves surfing. She does it whenever she can. She travels to surf. She spent a ton of money on boards and stuff like that. But then she writes, uh, and yet I suck at it. In the sport of Hawaiian kings, I'm a jester. (laughs) So she says, you know, why continue? Like, why pursue something that I will never be good at? Uh, Because, and her answer is, because it's actually great to not be good at something. It's great to suck at something. And I thought this was really interesting because... First of all, she's probably sandbagging a bit. I'm sure she's a totally fine surfer. I have no idea. But in this productivity world we get into, right, we we all study, we all read about things uh, like deliberate practice, right? Books I really like, like there's 
Peak, the new science of expertise. There's ultra learning. These are all books we've talked about on the on the podcast before. It's all about how to master what you're doing uh, and get like really good at things. Uh, but the author of the article anyway argues that sometimes it's being okay with not being at good at something actually gives you freedom. This freedom to to suck at something without caring about it is just revelatory, she says. So I thought this was a really fascinating topic that we never really talk about. We always talk about excellence and expertise. We never talk about being okay with not achieving that. So I'm curious what your thoughts on this are, Tan. Like, are you in the camp of like success breeds success? You know, there's that saying, how you do anything is how you do everything. And um, this was actually brought up in that Reddit th- thread you were talking about. Approaching things with that spirit of excellence kind of has a knock-on effect to how the rest of your life goes. Or is being okay with doing things and not being good at it, can that help give you like empathy and grace and free up that mental energy for the things you do care about? Or do you just have a total different take on this uh, in general? Like, uh, are you okay doing things and being bad at them? No, I am not good at that at all. Like, I'm the type of person that if I get into something, I really get into something. Um now, am I bad at a lot of different things? Yes. And I will accept that with going in with the intention of like, hey, I'm learning this. I want to get better at this. Then there's no reason for me to be sucking at something. So I actually had this really interesting conversation about this the other day. How, you know, I think I've shared with you and people on the podcast, like many years ago, I dislocated my shoulder and I had to have surgery on it. And it happened because I was taking hip hop classes and people always ask, well, how did you get into hip hop classes? And I said, well, it was part of my bucket list to always take a hip hop class. And so I took one and I was so bad, like I had two left feet. I was so terrible. But by the end of it, I was sweating, like I was drenched. And I normally never sweat when I work out. Like I have a hard time sweating in general. And so I thought, oh, this is good for sweating. Like I always wanted to sweat more, (laughs) funny enough, because I don't do it uh, at all. And so I said, you know, I'm going to go back and do another hip hop class because I think it's good for cardio and sweating, right? Which is all beneficial. And so, and this is before I went to this whole sauna thing, you know, where I sweat all the time now, but this is like 2016 or something. And so I went back for the second class, two left feet, you know, couldn't follow the beat whatsoever. And it was again, drenched in sweat, but I realized how bad I was. And so... Long story short, I ended up going to hip hop class twice a week for a whole year and I never missed a class. Like I didn't, I still traveled in that particular year, but my, tra- uh, the hip hop classes were always Mondays and Tuesdays. So my commitment was always to, if I were to do a trip to do it like Thursday through Sunday, so that I would be back on time for Monday and Tuesday's class. And so uh, after a whole year, I, I became pretty decent. There's a few videos I have where I can dance to certain songs because I know how to dance to them, which is always a funny way to show people of what, what I'm capable of. <laughs> and that I realize is because I really have this desire to get good at something. And so I wasn't as intense about it where I was like watching YouTube videos or something on my own to dance on my own at home. Like that's a different level of intensity. Like now that I play pickleball, anytime I have a break, I'm watching like pickleball instructional videos or I'm watching like pros pro games and we're just like kind of like observing and watching and if you look at my youtube history now it's like all i watch is like pickleball games now and instructional videos right 
And it's also a reflection of my time. Like a lot of my time is spent on the court and so on because I have this desire to be really good at something. Now, if I dive a level deeper, something I've realized a few years ago was sometimes when we're small, when we're little kids, we make a decision about something and that decision will stay with us for the rest of our lives and we'll continue to accept it as truth even though it might not serve us today anymore. So to give you an example, when I was a little kid, I was six years old, I went to the United States for the first time, spent the summer in Los Angeles. And when I came back, you know, I had the best time of my life, you know, I had McDonald's for the first time, Burger King, Olive Garden. I was like going to Disneyland, you know, Universal Studios, you know, my uncle who was a bachelor at the time studying for his PhD, you know, 26 or something, you know, he didn't know how to take care of a kid. So he just did what he thought was best. And, you know, I did all the fun stuff. And so I came back and I said, wow, I want to live in the United States. Like I said that when I was six years old and that was always my vision, my dream, you know, and that's a decision I made. And so every subsequent decision I've made ever since was all about how do I get to the United States? So I ended up going to a bilingual school, you know, studied for the SATs, you know, uh, did everything I could that led to the path of me ending up in the US. And that's, you know, what ended up happening, right? But uh, that's just one example. But another thing, this is more pertinent to this conversation here, is uh, I went through a personal development program and I realized at some point when I was younger, I made a decision to myself that said something along the lines of, hey, if I want to be accepted by people, I have to be the best at something. Because if you're the best at something, people will always accept you. So to give you some context, you know, my parents are Vietnamese. You know, they left the country. You know, they met each other at a refugee camp in the Philippines. You know, I was born inside of a refugee camp. We ended up immigrating to the Netherlands when I was like six months old. And so we were in the country with, you know, very little resources, didn't have any family, didn't speak the language you know, starting from the bottom, essentially all the way from scratch, right? And so when I went to school, I was like the only Asian kid in school, right? Everyone else was Dutch. And so for me, I always felt like, oh, I have to like fit in. I have to, you know, be accepted, you know, even though I am different, look different, talk differently, speak a different language and so on. And so as a, as a little kid, I decided that, you know, if I'm really good at sports, right? Then everyone will accept me. So I was like the most athletic kid in school. You know, when we had PE classes, I would be among the first to be picked uh, because people wanted to be around others who were really good at sports, right? And once I started to notice that, I realized, oh, if I'm the best at something, people will accept me. And, you know, that's how I, you know, will be accepted. And so then that translated into other things, you know, uh, learning, right? When I was like doing homework, I wanted to be the best in my class. And then if I think about everything else that translated in the rest of my life, like I always wanted to be the best at something, right? So when it came to productivity and starting Asian efficiency, I was like, no, I have to be the best at this. And, you know, hence why I sp spent, you know, so many hours studying, experimenting, doing different things. Then it came to like business and then it was like hip hop and now, even though I know this consciously now, when now that I play pickleball, I'm like, I have to be really good at this. Like, this is how, you know, I'm going to be really good. And it's just like this natural extension. So, uh, so long answer to, to your question, but basically, no, I don't resonate with sucking at something. <laughs> when you have that definition of being good at something, like, cause your dance class and, and pickleball are probably two good examples is your thinking like, Hey, I'm going to, there's all these people in this dance class. 
I presumably some of them have two left foot like you were when you started. Presumably some of them are really good. And of course, the instructor is going to be very good. Is your thinking that you need to be good in comparison to these other people? Or is it more like you want to be good to the extent of whatever your ability happens to be? Like, are you okay with other people you play pickleball with that some of them are just going to be better than you, but you want to get as good as you can? Or is your thinking like in comparison to other people, I guess? So I believe that you can be the best at anything, whatever you set your mind to, right? So like, even if you're freaking, you know, 70 plus, if you want to be the best at something, like you can totally be the best at something if you really set your mind and body into, right? So I don't think of it as in comparison to other people. Uh, I think of it as in comparison to what you think is available to you. So for me, when I start picking up hip hop, and this is something I think I'm naturally good at, which is why I'm so resourceful and helpful for clients is I always start with the end in mind, meaning, okay, I decided I want to learn more about hip hop and take more classes. What's my definition of success? Like what would be a good outcome for this? Right. And I said, okay, if I can walk to any bar club or someone's home and we play certain music that I can dance to it better than most people, or at least that I can dance to it. And it's relative to what other people can do. Right. So I don't think about, oh, I want to be better than this person or that person, or I want to be pro level or something like that. It's more about my definition of success was, hey, if I want to walk into any bar or club anywhere in the world, I could dance to any song, basically, and look like I know how to dance. Right. Or someone can look at me and say, oh, Tan knows how to dance. Same thing with pickleball. Like there's so many people who are way better than me and I know I will never get to their level. But I know like in Pickleball, we have these skill ratings, right? Like one through seven and tennis, you have that as well. Or just like in golf, you have a handicap number, right? Uh, Pickleball has something very similar to like where you can achieve a certain level of skill and it's based on a numeric number. And I said, well, if I get to four or five, which is like advanced, then I'm good. It's like one level below pro. And I feel like if I travel anywhere in the world and play this sport, I can keep up with anybody. And that's good enough for me. You know, and that's basically what I'm working towards. And so I'm pretty good at saying, okay, this is my definition of success and this is what I want to work towards. And once I hit it, I'm good with it. And then I can maintain it or keep it or decide to go beyond that if I want to. But now I at least have something to strive for. I think that's a much more healthy way to approach it is a kind of like intrinsic motivation versus extrinsic, uh, always comparing yourself to others. So that's a good way to do it. All right. Well, let's talk about the complete opposite of what we just talked about. So we just talked about being the best at things. Now let's change gears and let's talk about Evernote. <laughs> so this is kind of a follow up of what we've talked about in previous episodes, talking about how Evernote was acquired. We weren't sure what was going to happen. I think both of us said the same thing, which was let's wait and see what happens. We're not recommending that people jump ship necessarily, but we're also not recommending that a new user start using Evernote. And so there's been a lot of chatter over the last little while. People are uh, getting quite upset at Evernote <laughs> again uh, and because they've made some pretty significant changes. So first of all, the big change is that they've limited their free plan, which has always been a big part of getting people on board to Evernote, is 
they've limited it to just having 50 notes, five zero, 50 notes, and one notebook. And then if you want any more than that, you've got to pay. So that is one thing. They've severely limited the amount of data that you can store in Evernote, number one. And number two, they've upset paid users by jacking up the price. So a lot of people are finding very significant price increases if they do choose to stay loyal to Evernote. And I'm just curious where you're at with Evernote these days because people are starting to jump ship. Now, granted, a lot of people who are starting to jump ship are free users who possibly weren't going to pay anyway. But still, it's not looking like a great place to be. I still have a bunch of stuff in Evernote. I don't really use it actively anymore, uh, but I haven't taken my stuff out yet. But uh, I'm thinking maybe I'm going to start doing that. But I'm curious where you are. Yeah, I was just like looking at this the other day because I was like, okay, what is Evernote up to recently, right? And we don't have any f affiliation with Evernote or anything. I am a paid user. I am paying it out of pockets. Uh, so is Brooks. And so if you've been listening to us for a while, you know that we've always been very concerned about post-acquisition of Evernote by bending spoons. And now that this has happened, I would say, you know, I can kind of see both sides. Like, if you're bending spoons, if you think about it, okay, if someone has more than 50 notes, like you are actively using this app. And so you should probably pay for that, right? Most people, if they use less than 10 notes, then you can continue to use the free plan and, and you're fine, right? So there's threshold of what's the minimum number of notes that you have to have in order for you to feel like you're actually actively using the app and they said 50. Right. Which I think is actually very fair because that's a lot of notes if you're thinking about it. And if you look at your own Apple notes, for example, most of us probably have a lot of notes in there. And that's probably an app that you use quite often, right? If you're, if you're in, uh, in the Apple ecosystem. And so I can see how some people can get upset, especially if you're a current user right now and you're being forced to say, Hey, you know, like you have to move up if you're planning to use this, right? Like I would be upset about that as well. If I was a new user coming in and I said, okay, let me go give this a go. Then I think, okay, that's actually fair. Like, hey, if I use it more than 50 different notes, then I'm probably loving your app, right? But most users who are now on there are being forced something that they really don't want to do. And so it kind of brings people to an inflection point to say, hey, do I want to continue to use Evernote? Yes or no? And there are a lot of great options that are free where you can move stuff over and you don't have to pay for it, right? But my philosophy around payment for apps hasn't changed. And if you're new to us, maybe you're not familiar with this, but I'm a big believer of paying for software that you use on a day-to-day -day or weekly basis because one, it guarantees that the company will typically stay around. And two, it's a way to maintain the service because anything that's free at some point is going to die. That's just been the experience for me, for many people who have been around for a long time, like free apps just don't have the life cycle that will allow you to get really serious because at some point they have to make money, right? And they have to pay their bills, pay their servers, pay their developers and so on. If they can't do that, then the app will die. And then guess what? You're in trouble because now you have all this data and information stuck somewhere that you might not be able to get out. And then you move to another app that's free, right? And then it dies again. And like that has happened so many times now where I'm hoping people are starting to learn that, hey, it's actually a good thing to pay for software. And so 
my conclusion to all of this is say, hey, if you're a current Evernote user and you're being forced to upgrade, ask yourself, hey, do you want to continue to use the software, especially if it's helpful? Then I would say pay for it uh, because that's been my situation. If you're like, well, I don't really use Evernote anymore. It's just kind of there. Then you probably want to move stuff over and just start with a note-taking app that is quote-unquote free and at least has a paid option so that they're able to maintain but that kind of fits your bill, right? So if you think about different options, like Apple Notes is pretty good. Microsoft OneNote is pretty good nowadays. Like you can move stuff over there. Notion, really popular, is really good and seems financially viable for most people. Uh, those are probably your best options. Yeah, I wonder what their end goal is with this. My guess is their end goal with this whole change is not so much that they want to grow the system because I find it hard to believe that Evernote is going to be a sticky system that people convert free to paid if they only have 50 notes and one notebook. Like to me, it's a little hard to imagine somebody making it such a big part of their life that they're going to convert because of that. My guess is the whole purpose of this move is to get rid of the free users and just keep the paid users that are there out of momentum. You'll lose some, but some will stay just because they don't feel like moving uh, and then uh, get all the, the freeloaders off the system so that it's not costing them so much in storage and transfer fees and stuff like that uh, and just ride it out. That's my guess. Uh, but yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens over the next little while. It's definitely, definitely been a ride. Yeah, I mean, they also laid off most of their U.S. workers, right? So a lot of the operations of Evernote has been moving over to Europe, where they're based out of, I believe, in Italy. And so a lot of the actions that we're seeing on the outside is really about saving costs. Like, that's really what it seems like, right? Moving operations to Europe, getting rid of all the U.S. developers. Uh, I believe they had a bunch of developers in Chile as well. So that, you know, part of that makes sense because if most of your core operations is in Europe, then you want to have the team working on that, right? But then also getting rid of all these free users this way, it just tells me that they're really about cost cutting right now. There's been nothing to showcase that they're actively trying to recruit new users. They probably have some sort of strategy in place to be financially profitable with this company by cutting costs and cutting the fat and and so on. And then once they kind of get to that path, then maybe they start focusing on growth again, which could be new features and so on. I know they do a lot of stuff with AI and Evernote hasn't really dabbled into that, but I wouldn't be surprised if that becomes like a major feature like it has become for Notion and all their tools where things just become even easier and simpler using uh, some of the built-in AI tools that are nowadays available. So I think if they make that splash, I wouldn't be surprised if they get all the press again, right? And all the notoriety and mentions online that kind of brings them more users. And so my stance is if you're looking for a new note-taking app, I probably would not recommend Evernote. I'd probably go with the other options that I've mentioned until they do something revolutionary again uh, that will make them earn the right to be a uh, recommendation. All right, Brooks, this is uh, the last episode of 2023. So as always, we like to end our episodes with an action item, right? So if you made it this far, I would say, hey, take some time off. You have my permission to kind of relax between now and the new year and go ahead and do that. It's okay to suck at something, I guess, right? Uh, if you're going to guess, if you're going to take some time off, might as well be good at that, but suck at everything else that maybe you're not that good at. But I don't want you to be sucking at uh, taking the time off that you deserve uh, because you have earned that this year. Now, 
Uh, books, this is a tradition that we have here at AE, which is it's the end of the year. We like to say some nice words and, and show some gratitude and things that we're grateful for. So I'm going to give you the final word on this episode to close us out. All right. I just want to say I'm really thankful for the Product TV Show listeners. I love hearing from everybody and what they like and don't like about the podcast, suggestions for topics. And I know what as a podcast listener myself, uh, I definitely enjoy spending time with the people that I listen to. And so I really appreciate you spending time with us. Awesome. Thank you all for listening. And uh, we'll see you in the new year. See you then. Bye.